Today's scripture reading is from Romans 9 through 10 and then Colossians 4. Um, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And from Colossians 4, it says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. This is the word of the Lord. that coming through? There we go. We are in the middle of a series, three more weeks to go in this series called Zealous for Good Works, which comes from Titus chapter 2. And I want to make a distinction clear that I hope has been clear every single week, but uh, it bears repeating that uh, in the Christian life, I want you to pay attention to the uh, prepositions I'm about to use. In the Christian life, we are saved for good works. We are saved for good works. We are not saved by good works. What does that mean? It means that here we preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that it's not of works. There's nothing that we can do. When I say works, I'm talking about personal righteousness. I'm talking about our own ability to earn God's love and a place in His kingdom forever. That is not what we are saying when we say that we are to be zealous for good works. It's not that we get access to God by our good works. However, The Scriptures are very clear in Titus 2 and in many other places I could show you that though we are not saved by good works, we are saved for good works. That means that when we are saved by God, which is totally by His grace, He actually calls us to be a certain type of people. And it's actually the good works that we are called to 
that the Scriptures tell us we need to pay attention to. We've been looking at some of them about uh, reverencing God's name, about uh, kind of more of the internal ones like repentance. And now we're going to move a little more external out into our neighborhoods, out into society and the good works that we should find there. So today we're talking about being zealous for the lost. That is for those who are uh, not believing. Next week we'll look at zealous for the poor. It's what the Scripture tells us we should be doing. And then we'll close out by looking at being zealous and serving one another in the church, and then we will finish the series. But today, zealous for the lost. For the lost, yes. We are talking about that word that is seldom used and uh, often can seem very trite, talking about evangelism or sharing our faith. It's a scary word. It brings up images for you, perhaps depending on your background Uh, I don't know what the image is or what the fear might be this morning. Perhaps you didn't grow up in the church. Perhaps you're not a professing uh, Christian this morning, or maybe you've walked away from that and you uh, have your doubts and worries about this. And so when I say that we're talking about sharing your faith, you immediately get guarded because uh, it seems like, okay, here's where the manipulation's coming in. Here's the sales pitch. Maybe you've been around Ascension for a little while. You haven't Uh, you know, nobody's pressured you to do anything, but it's today, right? That's what you're thinking. Today, somebody's going to make you raise your hand or, you know, uh, walk down the aisle or something like that. And that, I want to alleviate you that nobody's going to make you do anything today. If you grew up in church, um, you have a different fear. When When I mentioned sharing your faith, what you feel if you're a Christian is perhaps guilt, shame, You have this vague sense that you should be doing this and you feel like it's not enough. So, not not good vibes starting out, right, when we talk about these things sometimes. And uh, I want you to know that this is a place, and we we work really hard at this. I hope it's the the case for you. Ascension Church is a place where uh, we... We belong, even if we don't believe. In a sense, we are here together, and you are most welcome here, and uh, this is a safe place, and nobody's going to pressure you to do anything, I hope. If if you feel that pressure, I want to hear about it. We have done a lot to cultivate here a sense of safety and protection here, but I also know that this is a church where we talk about real things, and where we address things that are hard and real And the Scriptures tell us, if we're going to let that be our guide in life, that there is, there are two pathways that we can go down. Psalm 1 talks about the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. Paul, in the passage today that we're looking at, says those who are outsiders. So he assumes that there are some who are outside the faith and some who are inside the faith. The Bible also talks about being lost and being found, meaning there's uh, there's, there's two different states that you can be in, and that's a real thing. And if that's a real thing, how ought we who are perhaps found on the inside, perhaps we are uh, found by God, perhaps we are saved by His grace, perhaps we're made righteous by the blood of Jesus, if that's the case, how ought we to interact with, feel about, talk to, those who are on the outside. It's what we're going to be talking about today. We need God's help, so let's go and and ask Him in prayer for His help. Father in heaven, Lord, just whatever the reactions are as we approach a topic like this, 
I pray that by your Spirit you would smooth them, that we could see wonderful and delightful things from your Word, that we can be encouraged, that we can be built up, that we can be, yes, challenged, but so that in such a way that we know that we're loved, that we're cared for, that we are fed, that we belong with you. And so, Father, I pray that you would convict us, but also that you would feed us and, and care for us and love us as you've said that you will. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I was a, a student at, a graduate student at Covenant Seminary, that's where I went to, to seminary in St. Louis, and um, they had this thing as, as a seminary student where you could help visiting students, um, you know, have a, a prospective student, right, would come and visit the school, thinking about perhaps going to school there, and they would ask sometimes exemplary students, uh, <laughs> That's going to be funny in just a second while I screw this up, but they asked exemplary students to supervise them and help them, you know, throughout the day. And, um, and so they would come in from outside. My friend, a uh, good friend of Becca and mine, his name Melinda, she worked in the admissions office and she tapped me on the shoulder one day and said, I've got this student, I'll call him Ryan. And Ryan is coming in and uh, he's, I want somebody, I want him to shadow you in your classes and, um, and you can answer his questions and that kind of thing. So I, I said that I'd be happy to do that. And so we, we started out the day with Ryan. Um, I think he was from somewhere else in the Midwest, and, and he, he was traveling. In other words, he had just had a day to be there. And so we started going to classes. We went to Greek, you know. I went to heavy theology classes. It was a long morning of classes. It just so happened that it was some of the heaviest stuff. And I could tell this guy was wilting <laughs> under the, the, uh, the not understanding and the, the, uh, the heavy things that we were talking about. And so I said on a whim, I didn't have any more classes for us the day. He was scheduled to go with another student for, the, for, for more classes throughout the day. So on a whim, I said, you know what? Why don't you skip those classes? And go with me. And what I'm going to do is I, I thought I was helping, right? I said, I'm going to show you the city. I don't have any more classes for us today, and I think this would help you. It's not just the classes. It's also about living here in St. Louis and enjoying things, and, uh, and so I took him out, and he agreed. On the way out, I actually ran into Melinda from the admissions office, and I said, this is what we're doing. She's like looking at me skeptically, and I said, you know, but she lets us go, and so I take him out to see the city, and it was a complete disaster. Nothing worked out. We got stuck in traffic right away. <laughs> We were sitting in this long drive for like 30 minutes, going to this one location that I want to take him to. When we got there, it was closed for the day. St. Louis is a very spread out city. There's, you, it takes a long time to get anywhere. So uh, I drove him to another area. It was, it was terrible. We got off track, more traffic. We ended up on some streets that were less than desirable to, that you want to show someone necessarily when they're visiting a city for the first time. Eventually, one of us had to go back. I don't remember who, but we had to end our time, and we had not done anything except sit in traffic awkwardly together. So we went back. I drove him back. I apologized best I could and said, hey, really, there really are some cool stuff here, and hope it goes well, you know, the rest of the trip. And I was deflated, guilty. I have ruined this opportunity. 
I felt like I was entrusted uh, to be an ambassador, right, for, for the school, for my friend Melinda, and I failed. I'm a poor ambassador, even though my intention was good. I let him down, I let my friend Melinda down, I let the school down. And I think that something like that is how we feel when we talk about this topic of sharing our faith with those who are outside. It's a feeling of guilt, it's a feeling that I'm a poor ambassador, and there's very little that I feel like I can do to improve that. And perhaps we love the church, and we love Jesus, and we think that there's something here. But it's so hard to communicate what that thing is to someone who's outside. And so we end up getting lost, and we end up being deflated, and we feel like poor ambassadors while we are trying to do good. What are our responsibilities? Well, Scripture does not present to us or prescribe to us step-by-step methodology for how we have evangelistic encounters with someone. And I think that the church often pushes people astray when there's a kind of programmatic feel to how we do this. The Scriptures simply do not tell us exactly how to do it. It actually focuses on something different. It focuses on the type of people that we are rather than the types of things that we say or do in a specific encounter with someone. It actually tells us this is how we are to be. Look at Colossians 4, verse 5. This is what, in essence, he's saying. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. So the question is, how do you walk in wisdom towards outsiders, towards those who are the lost? What is our duty and our responsibility? Here's our question this morning. What can we do to cultivate a zeal for the lost? What's in our domain of responsibility? We're going to talk about salvation being the responsibility of God. That at the end of the day, He is the one who's in charge of who is in His church. And yet, we are called to have an eagerness, a desire for those who are outside and to walk in wisdom with them. Look at Romans chapter 10, verse 1, where he says, my, this is Paul saying, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for them. He's talking about the Israelites who are zealous for righteousness. And he looks at them and he says, my heart's desire is for them. And my prayer is for them that they may be saved. How do we cultivate that kind of heart? Well, there's five, five things I want to talk about that cultivate a zeal for the lost. The first one is this, and the longest point here is that we have to have knowledge of the gospel ourselves. Knowledge. Our zeal must be according to knowledge, is what Paul says in this passage in Romans 9 and 10. What I mean by that is not that we have to have factoids about the Christian life or about apologetics or about, you know, if you know that word, it means just defense of the faith. Uh, We don't have to have all the knowledge so that we can answer anybody's question. That's not what I mean by knowledge. I mean saving knowledge. Knowledge of what it is that makes us outsiders turned insiders, lost and then found. What is that? It's the gospel. 
And look at the contrast that he draws in chapter 9, starting in verse 30. What shall we say then? Paul is talking about the Jews and the Gentiles. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Paul says here that the Gentiles are now insiders. They are now found. They have received faith and Israel has not. And surprising. Why? He's talking in general terms here. He's not saying that everyone who was an Israelite is lost, of course. He's saying, in general, this was the response. The Gentiles didn't even try. That's what he says. They did not pursue righteousness. The ones who didn't pursue it have obtained it, have attained it. What makes them inside the faith? It is their faith. They have a righteousness that they could not attain. And Paul says this was always going to happen. There is this stumbling over a stumbling stone. Verse 33, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Paul takes two verses from Isaiah and puts them together. He connects two dots about stones in Isaiah. He puts them together and he says, look, this is the stumbling stone. It was this one who was to come. Who is the stumbling stone? It's Jesus Christ. The stumbling stone is the need for a Savior that they could not have a righteousness of their own. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says that Christ is the stumbling block for the Jews. Same language. What does he mean? He's saying here, a line gets drawn as it relates to righteousness and being right with God. And what is the line? It's not a line of personal righteousness because the Gentiles would have been left out. It's actually how you respond to this Savior, this stumbling stone, Jesus Christ. Christ, in other words, will either be your foundation stone or he will be your stumbling stone. You'll either build your life on him or you'll trip over him trying to do your own thing to earn your way back to God. If you picture it this way, this is an image I thought of. Think of someone who's swimming the English Channel or swimming the Panama Canal, one of these great feats of of swimming a huge distance, and many people have died trying to do that. If you can't swim the distance, when is the best time to know that you cannot swim the distance? Before you reach the halfway mark, (laughs) okay? If you reach, yeah, before you get in, that's right, even better. So if you reach the halfway mark, then it's the same distance back as it is forward, and you are lost, right? That is the idea. What he says here is this. The Gentiles touched their feet into the water and realized they could never swim the distance. And so they were saved. While Israel were the best swimmers. They were the most righteous, but it didn't matter. They had zeal. Look at chapter 10, verse 2. For I bear witness to them, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. 
their zeal could not save them. What did they need knowledge of? They needed to accept the stumbling stone. They needed to receive this Christ. This One who could do it for them. That righteousness came by faith in Him rather than in performance for ourselves. Same idea, different day. How many of us put our stock, put our identity in our own righteousness our zeal many of you are zealous for certain things maybe you're zealous for any one of the good things that we've been talking about zealous for the poor zealous to change the world zealous for the environment zealous for any number of things that's outside what about inside zealous to be a good person zealous to hold your family together and you think at the end of the day i'm doing a good job if i can just do this And what you're plagued by if you're zealous for something is this question, is it enough? Could it ever possibly be enough? And the gospel comes to you and says, you can have righteousness that doesn't come from you. And others, you're unmotivated. You have no zeal whatsoever. It's not that you are overly zealous. It's that you can't motivate yourself at all. And, you, and your question is, am I doing enough? It's really the same question. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, in other words, whether you're trying by your own righteousness or you're depending on others, here's the good news. You can belong somewhere and to someone that does not require your performance, your zeal, to belong Because Jesus, Paul says here, is the end of the law. If righteousness was by the law, then no one would be righteous. But Christ is the end, the telos, the the goal of the law was Christ. For righteousness to everyone who believes. Now I belabor this point this morning because I want us to show the dividing line such that there is one. And there is one. The Scriptures tell us the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked, the outsider, the insider, the lost and the found has nothing to do with our personal zeal or righteousness. It has everything to do with our faith in Jesus Christ. That is zeal according to knowledge. Knowledge of the Holy One of Israel. Knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's what saves. Paul Use this knowledge of the gospel to have a zeal, an eagerness for the Jewish people to acknowledge Christ. You see it in verse 1 of chapter 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. My heart's desire. And so for those of us who are Christians this morning and we've received that gospel, we believe that gospel, and we're thinking about how we share that gospel, we must know this. There is such a thing as a lost person. You can't have a zeal for the lost if you don't believe that there are lost people. The Scriptures are clear. This is the way of salvation. This is the way, the truth, and the life. And it's a stumbling stone to those who do not believe. 
But to those who believe, it is everything. It is the foundation stone. And it makes a difference how you build your life. And so we have to think in terms of other people. Who are we have a heart's desire for? Who do we desire to be saved? Number one is knowledge. The other ones are quicker, I assure you. Prayer. If we're going to cultivate a zeal for the lost, prayer must be a part of it. As I've read in verse 1 of chapter 10, my heart's desire and prayer for them. Look how Paul encourages prayer in the Colossians passage we read in verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Be watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ. So Paul says, I have a desire and a prayer, and he wants the Colossian people to to pray with him for opportunities to share the Word. So you might say that what Paul highlights here is that when he thinks about the lost, he has thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers, which is a phrase that's come under attack recently, right? Because every politician and their mother says thoughts and prayers, and they tweet that, and it has become somewhat of an old thing to say. And it certainly is the case that oftentimes we need more than thoughts and prayers, but we don't need less than them. Thoughts and prayers are things that we can do for the lost in a time sometimes when we may not be able to do much else. When it comes to a person's faith, somebody else's faith outside of us, what, what tools do we have other than prayer? Very little. Paul says, will you pray with me that there will be an opportunity? And why does he encourage them to pray for his opportunities? Well, prayer then is a demonstration of the fact that you know where salvation comes from. It doesn't come from clever words. It doesn't come from manipulation. It doesn't come from any kind of uh, programmatic response. Having the right words to say, the right arguments to have. Salvation comes by the Spirit of God. We are born again by the Spirit of God. He makes people alive towards Him. He softens hearts. He changes hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. This is God's work. And prayer says, I can't make this happen, but you can. Will you? At least I can be faithful to ask. Prayer is also where our hearts are revealed. Paul says, my heart's desire and prayer. I bear witness. (laughs) I bear them witness. What does he mean by that? That they have a zeal for God. Paul is saying, I know what drives them. I I grew up in that. I was righteous according to the law. I was the best swimmer. And I bear witness today that they have every good intention and desire See his love for them? Have you ever loved someone who was misguided? Or wanted something for them that you could see that they couldn't see? That's the heart's desire. And that shows up in a life of prayer. Third, 
wisdom. These are the things that we can do to create a, a zealousness for the lost. We can grow in our knowledge of the gospel. We can pray. We can walk in wisdom. Look at verse 5 of Colossians 4. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Walking has to do in the Scriptures always with conduct, how we present ourselves. How do we walk in wisdom? Well, there's two things I'd like to say. One of them is implied in this verse, and one of them is stated. The implied part is through presence, your presence. How do you walk in wisdom towards outsiders if you don't know any outsiders? We must be where the people are. That means if we're going to walk in wisdom towards outsiders, we must be where outsiders are. This means that we, among other things, are good neighbors. We know our neighbors' names. If you don't know their names, you can find out. You can make them cupcakes. That's how you do it. And you say, I made you cupcakes. I'm sorry, I forgot your name. <laughs> you bite the bullet. You go to the block party. You hand out candy at Halloween. You talk to people at the gym. You talk to people in the line at the grocery store. We have a life outside of our, our little circles. How else would we walk in wisdom towards outsiders if we were not with outsiders? And then he says a very specific thing that we can do when we are with outsiders. It's speech. He says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Gracious speech, seasoned with salt. Salt is a preservative. Salt is a flavor enhancer. You are preserving the, the good, true, and beautiful things. You are preserving the name of your neighbor. You are also being an interesting person. You're talking about things that matter and, and the things that are good. This is the way that we gain trust. We walk in wisdom towards outsiders by letting our speech be gracious. For those who are church leaders or desire to be church leaders, elders, pastors in the room, having a good report with outsiders, 1 Timothy 3, verse 7, same word as here, is a requirement for ministry, having this reputation. So, we can have knowledge, we can pray, we can walk with wisdom. Those are all kind of internal things. As we close with just two other things that I want to talk about, this is more of for the actual time when we talk to someone about our faith. What are we responsible for? Well, we're responsible to pray and look for opportunity and also to speak with clarity. Opportunity. Paul speaks about this in two ways in Colossians. He says, pray uh, for us, verse 3, that God may open to us a door for the Word. Notice that Paul is asking for an opportunity or a door to open for the Word, not for his own success. What he's looking for is an opportunity to speak about Christ. 
the hope that is within him. That is what he's looking for. He's not looking for a notch on his belt. He's not looking for some kind of success story that he can share on social media. He is looking for an opportunity for the Word. We cannot convince, manipulate, or coerce people into faith, but we can look for opportunities. The second way that he talks about it is redeeming the time. He says, uh, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. The word there literally is redeeming the time or buying up the time, meaning that your day is something that you steward for God's glory. And as you have a day in Christ, as you have opportunities with those who are outside the faith, that you think about those opportunities in a stewardship way. What are the opportunities? It may just be one. It may, not, it may be every other day. It's not, it's, it's not the number. It's not, it's not about the success rate. It is about the opportunity. Every day we should be praying, whatever comes my way, is there opportunity for me to to glorify you? Is there an opportunity for me to share the hope that's within me? That's what 1 Peter 3.15 says. It says, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. That we have, that we're ready for opportunities when they come that we have something in our hearts. It's not the right wording. It's not a manipulative thing. But we do see opportunities. What are we sharing with them? What do we share? There is no formula. But we share the Word. That is Christ, the hope of glory. The thing that is the stumbling block or the foundation stone is Jesus. And so I would encourage us to say, well, is there a way that we can talk about Jesus not talking about being a better person. Not talking about how to improve your marriage. Those things may come later. We're looking for opportunities to talk about Jesus Christ. Because He is our hope. If all else fails, you can always do the classic, which there's nothing wrong with, which is inviting them to church. I know it's passe. I know it's, it's old school. But there is a place where the gospel is preached every week and experienced in people's lives. And everything that we do here is just the seed form of what a life in God is supposed to look like. The Word, sacraments, prayer, experience of God. And we're reading a book right now as uh, pastors on the staff on um, the research that's come out on the great de-churching. And those that have walked away from the faith, 40 million uh, who walked away from attending church, if not from the faith. And this, one of the surprising studies is this. 51% said in the survey of these de-churched people that 51% said they would have willingness to come back to church if invited. Opportunities. Finally, clarity. Words are how we communicate the gospel. I know St. Francis of Assisi said that you need... You know, you don't have to use your words. But that's not what the Bible says. It's not what St. Francis said either, by the way. He did, that's misquoted by him. Words. Paul says what he prays for in verse 4, 
that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Of course, we're supposed to walk with wisdom. I'm not saying that the way that we conduct ourselves doesn't matter, but the words that we use matter as well. Clarity. This is the truth. This is what I believe. Not at the expense of being gracious. Not at the expense of being unkind. Ephesians 4, we're supposed to speak in such a way that it brings grace to the hearers. That's what he says in Ephesians 4. We're to speak the truth in love. We never leave behind love. But we do bring clarity. I used to believe sort of two things about this, this type of topic. If I hide, this is what I used to believe, if I hide what I believe, or at least for a little while, hide what I believe, that will make people more likely to get in the door, and then they can deal with the controversial stuff later. It's not how it works. It's not how it works. People know what's real and what's not real by clarity, by me stating, even from the beginning today, Psalm 1, there's the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. This is the clarity that we need. That there is such a thing as being inside of Christ and that that is the best possible news you could ever receive. It's that clarity. Here's another thing I used to believe. If I do my best to agree with people when they slander God or slander the church or somehow delight in the things that God doesn't delight in, that, that me agreeing with them or me being more in line with them will help them come closer to the kingdom. I have not found that to be the case either. Perhaps it makes me have a more agreeable relationship with them. Perhaps. But in my experience, honesty is much more better received, is much better received. And in any case, by me joining in with them does not move them any closer to God. These are the things that we're committed to. It's cultivating these things. It is not the results. It is not the number of salvations. It is not the who walks down the aisle or raises the hand. It is that we are a people who are zealous for the lost, that we are the ones who are eager. God uses our actions. He uses our words. He uses our witness. He uses uh, our failures for His purposes. I'll close a couple years after my story with Ryan. That day of failure, um, I was in our lunchroom at the seminary, and this was like two years later. Th that day was not on my mind in the least, and I look across the room, and I see Ryan. He's a student. You know, they kind of keep us according to our year, so you don't have a lot of interaction with people that are coming up from the other years. But I, I saw him one day sitting there with his classmates, and I thought that I had totally ruined that experience for him. He did not seem like he was vibing on coming to school there. <laughs> and to this day, I haven't ever spoken to him again. I have no idea why. Was it something I said? Was it something about the class? <laughs> something I did? Or was it because, in some weird way, because of my utter failure? I don't know. I have no idea. And none of us knows what God will do with our faithfulness. That's the point. 
We are called to be people who are zealous for the lost. But we have no idea what he will do with that faithfulness. We cannot look at the outcomes. We look at process. Am I being faithful? Do I have a knowledge of the gospel? Do I have specific people that I pray for? Am I walking in wisdom? Or is there something about my life that is outside the pale that would be a a, a stumbling block to someone? Am I looking for opportunities or open doors that God may give me just in my normal course of daily life? Am I speaking with clarity? Or do I look for opportunities to hide? The only way that we can be zealous for the lost is if we remember the gospel ourselves. We are not saved by zealousness, including and especially our zeal for those who are outside. That is not the gospel. All of us were outsiders. All of us were lost until we are found by God. All of us are far from Him and His promises for Gentiles. We were not born under the righteousness of the law. We were born outside of the law, and yet Christ is the end of the law. And so it is not our righteousness, least of which would be our righteousness of sharing our faith that makes us acceptable to God. Do we have knowledge? Are we tripping over Christ? Zeal according to knowledge. Christ is the end of the law. Christ is our righteousness. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. We know that you, better than Paul, bear witness to our zeal. As he looked at the Israelites who had zeal, but not according to knowledge, so you can look in each soul and see our zeal, how we want to be good parents, how we want to make the world a better place, how we want to advance your kingdom. But I pray that our zeal would be according to the knowledge that none of us can have righteousness outside of Christ. We thank you that you gently have called us from the outside to the inside. And you have not left us. You have, in fact, been hospitable to us. You've brought us in. You've invited us to sit at your table. You've fed us from your own hand. You've given us your righteousness. You've adopted us into your family. You have given us an inheritance, an eternal life. And I pray, Father, that as we are saved by your righteousness, that we would also, in this moment, even as we take of you at the table, would cultivate a zeal, an eagerness, and a desire for those who are outside. Transform us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.